Now, with the remainder of our time, we dealt with a lot of the what we are trying to do and how we do it, but we have not really scratched the surface of why. Uh, what is the purpose behind all this? In Chuck Colson's book, Kingdoms in Conflict, he tells a story of a concentration camp in Hungary during World War II. And the prisoners in that concentration camp had to work in a sewage plant. Not great work, but it was work. And through the course of the war, the Allied bombers blew it up. And now we don't have anything to do. The officers that ran the camp arranged for the prisoners to move all of the debris that once was the factory from one side of the property to the other. The next day they came back and they loaded the exact same debris back onto carts and moved it back to where it was the first day. Back and forth. And this went on day after day. After a while, Colson tells in his book, people started to go crazy. The, the lack of purpose, there's no value in this, drove people insane to the point where people were running towards electric fences. I, I just can't do it anymore. Oftentimes, this is how we feel about discipleship. I understand Matthew 28, right? Go and make disciples. We've all heard great commission. But why? Sometimes I feel like I'm just moving rubble from one side of a field to the other and back and forth, and there's no real value there. So the, for the remainder of our time this morning, I want to try and ex expand on why we do this. Where is the value? And as I started looking at discipleship, I couldn't find one passage where all of discipleship is summed up. I was having a hard time and uh, I had a conversation with Johnny Oler, who's in here somewhere. Johnny is one of my youth group leaders and a, a good friend and he suggested that I chase down the real core of it, of, of what it means to follow Christ and, and why we disciple people and that is the doctrine of union with Christ. So if you have your Bible this morning, you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Like discipleship, union with Christ is not uh, built out of one text, but out of many. Um, so we are going to be jumping around a lot. Have your finger-turning pages ready. you be ready to go. And we are going to be our main text this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30 and 31. If you would stand with me, I'm going to read God's Word. First Corinthians 1, verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Father, we thank you uh, for a church, a, a church body, a group of believers. We stand on the shoulders of men and women who have come before us, we thank you for their discipleship of us and the patience they had to bring us up in the faith. I pray that we would be able to do the same, to bring a younger generation into a closer union with you for very important reasons, not blindly or valueless, but because we have been united to you, Lord, and that that has made all the difference. I pray that you overcome 
my inabilities as a speaker and as a person, and that your word would be preached here this morning. May we pray, amen. You may be seated. Now, uh, we started with discipleship, and we're going to reverse engineer into why we have the chart that Linda and I just, th- this little thing. Why? Why? What is the purpose? And it, it may, it's going to be a little bit roundabout. I, I hope you, you stay with me. We'll get there. Um, and if you notice, our text this, today doesn't have the word disciple or discipleship anywhere near it. What are you getting after? I don't, why, why this text for, for teaching on why we do discipleship? And it's at, born out of this doctrine of union with Christ. However, before we get to that, a, a little background in, in Corinthians. Paul is writing to believers, and especially in this section of this first chapter, he is dealing directly with something that's called Gnosticism. Gnosticism in the first century was the idea that you are saved through special knowledge. My, my salvation is dependent upon how much I know, my wisdom. So if you look back in verse 22 of chapter 1, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. At your brightest moment, you are infinitely lesser than God's intelligence. You think you're saved by your own IQ. You got a big gap to to cover there, buddy. It's not going to work. This isn't going to work for you. And Paul is dealing directly with this idea that you're saved by knowledge. No, no, no. You weren't saved by, you're not saved by your intellect. There's no aptitude that gets you in. Likewise, you're not strong enough. You're not, I'm bulky enough to, you know, I'm just, I'm that guy. The guy that's big enough that people like don't want to tell him it's weird, you know? Like, never mind, okay. You know what I'm talking about. There's no strength you can have that covers the gap between you and God. It's not on you. Continuing on in verse 26, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose that which is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He chose you when you were lowly. In your weakest moment, and the ones that we don't want anyone else to know about, Therefore, you cannot boast. I have no inherent value in my position in God's kingdom. I'm the, the lowest of the low, and he chose me. And that brings us to our text this morning. And because of him, verse 30, you are in Christ. He chose you out of his own will. Uh, Paul uses this idea all over the place. What jumps to mind is Titus 3, verse 5. It's not by works of righteousness that you did, but according to his mercy that you are saved. 
because of him, you are in Christ. Not because of your works. Not because you're such a swell guy. It has nothing to do with your business acumen or voted most likely to be saved. It's all because him. Out of his mercy, he saved you. And that leads right into what I want to talk about this morning, your union with Christ. You can see it there, just, it's very brief. Because of him, you are in Christ. That is a huge deal for Paul. It is all over his writings. In 13 letters, he uses in Christ or something similar 160 times over. It is everywhere. Now, if you were to compile all of someone's life work and they use something over 160 times, you might think, I think they have, this is a big deal to them. It's everywhere. It boils down to two basic things. Christ is in you and you are in Christ. This is found uh, in lots of different places, but two very good ones. John chapter 15 in a familiar passage of the vine and the branches. Verse 4 and 5, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Christ is in you and you are in Christ. Similarly, in 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 to 15, by this we know that we abide in him. And he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. You are united with Christ in your faith. There is a union there, and sadly, it is not, it's underemphasized. Part of that is due to drastically inadequate language. I'm in a relationship with Christ. I'm also in a relationship with the guy I volunteer with at a soup kitchen, right? The, the contrast here is, is massive, yet I use the same word to describe both. And in that, language gets lost the robust reality of your union. And what that means, for Paul, it's everywhere. You can look at one of his more famous uses of this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Everything I do, my life is in Christ. And Christ is in me. I have been united with him. Every move, the, the life I live, it's by faith in Christ. This is the picture of baptism, right? You are lowered into the grave. You're, you die there and you are raised a new person with Christ. This is symbolic nature of baptism. Uh, it's not hard to see why this is ingrained into Paul's thinking in Acts chapter 9 on the Damascus road as he is Saul on his way to persecute more Christians God calls to him from heaven and says Saul why do you persecute me this is Acts chapter 9 verse 4 and Saul says 
who are you? I don't even know what you're talking about, man. Like, persecute who? For Jesus, to persecute the church is to persecute him. These are one and the same. There is a union there. And in a very real way, Saul was persecuting Christ. Before he was even a believer, he understood this. There is a union there. To persecute believers is to persecute Jesus. They are united in a way that I have never seen. It is no surprise that we use many metaphors in the New Testament to try to explain this phenomenon, none of which are perfect. Again, not surprising that in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul uses the metaphor of a marriage, that Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. This is the closest relationship we have on earth. And, and this is how we describe Christ's union with you as a believer. If you have faith, you are united to him. Now, what does this union mean? What does it do? I get it. I'm united. So what? Go back to our text in 1 Corinthians 1. And because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God. Okay, again, Paul is dealing with this Gnostic heresy of wisdom. So he's looking at these believers who are struggling with, my, through my spe special knowledge, I'm saved. He says, no, your wisdom is in Christ. He is wisdom. There's nothing that you can intellectually ascend to to be able to be saved. Your wisdom is Christ. And then he gives three things. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now this list is not exhaustive. It's also not chronological, by the way. Paul is not saying you are righteous, then you are sanctified, then you are redeemed. They are three different metaphors to describe his union to you. The one reality of Christ's union, there are three aspects of that. Christ became your righteousness. This comes out of Romans 5. Uh, the theological term is imputed righteousness. You have imputed sin from Adam. You either live under Adam or you live under Christ. And under Adam, you are sinful. You are broken. You are depraved. And there's nothing you can do on your own. There's no wisdom. There's no strength that can save you. And through Christ... He has imputed his righteousness to you. It has been reckoned your own. Your union has made you righteous. We like to backload Christianity. You get saved and, and you, have to, you can't do what you want now, but when you die, you go to heaven. And that's awesome. The beauty of Christianity is on the front. You are immediately united with Christ. That changes how you live and what you do. You become righteous. It's not back heavy. This isn't the, I mean, you do get heaven as well. But the investment pays return all the way through, immediately. You become, you're united to him and his righteousness and his redemption and grace it's everywhere in the New Testament. As we come to this realization that we are united with Christ, we get to joyously accept that there's no evil I did that could keep him from being united to me. 
There's no dark moment that no one else has seen that Christ said, you know, I can't be united to that person. There's no skeleton in your closet big enough to keep you from this union that the righteousness of Christ cannot cover. It covers infinitely, for he is of infinite value. It becomes the most joyous thing ever, not waiting for heaven, living for now. I am united to Christ. What a beautiful thing in the immediate, right now. I don't wait for the value. It is immediately to me. I am united with him. If your salvation is a wheel, union with Christ is the hub, and all of the things that we know about salvation are the spokes that go from it. Justification, sanctification, grace, redemption, adoption, all of this goes into your union. It's the broader picture of what it means to be saved. Now, let's not for a second believe that you are only united to him in the good things. You are also united in his suffering. Philippians chapter 3, Paul says this. Philippians 3, starting in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Pay attention, this is a very interesting phrase. And I share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. I'm united with him in his humiliation and his glory, and his death and his resurrection. It's not, you, you can't have one or the other, it's both and. Paul says it so strongly, uh, our weak translators don't want to say it what it is. It would be a four-letter word in English. I consider it rubbish, the, uh, the Greek word skubla. The old King James translators were a little more honest. They called it dung. It's so strong. It's so worthless compared to knowing Christ, to being in him, not even close. You are united with him. This means that you get to take part of his righteousness, of his glory, and of his suffering. George MacDonald said, The Son of Man suffered unto death, not that you might not suffer, but that your sufferings would be like his. I am a part of that. You and I, if we have faith, if you are sitting here this morning, uh, pause, and you, and you don't have faith in Christ, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, this, this is what it means to be saved. You get to be united with Christ. If you are saved, let the reality of that union be fresh and new inside of you. I am, I am righteous because of Christ. 
And I get to join in that glory immediately. Again, for Paul, this is just presupposed. Romans chapter 6. You don't have to turn there. Just listen in verse 5 and 6. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we no longer, so that we would no longer be enslaved, enslaved to sin. We know that. This is just, for Paul, I know. I'm united with him. Therefore, I'm not a slave to sin anymore. I know. This is just, this is just basic understanding. If you're a Christian, you know that. This is part of what it is to be a Christian. You're united with Christ. That union permeates through into every aspect of your life. It's not a Sunday, Wednesday thing. At all times, present, active, united. Okay, so what? Give me, give me the tie back. What, what does this mean? I get it. Like big theological things. I, I have imputed righteousness. But what does that mean for my day to day? What does that change? What does that union have to say with how I go to work tomorrow? Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above. Where Christ is seated on the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are in the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you shall also appear in glory. It's not hard to make the corollary statement. If your mind is on things below, you have not been raised. Your union... If you are, you are hidden in Christ, in God, your mind just wants to think about things above, the things of importance, of eternal value, and you don't want the things below. What are the things below? Well, I'm glad he gives us a list. Verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, covetousness which is idolatry on account of these things is the wrath of God coming okay so in my day-to-day my union with Christ tells me I will not do these things not because I'm seen better in the community or because I want to have a higher standing in my church but because I'm united with Christ and there's no place for this My union necessitates that my mind is on things above. Okay, that's on the negative end. I don't do this. What do I do? 2 Corinthians 5. I told you, we'd be jumping around a lot. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... Again, in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ 
reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So there it is. There's your union. That is, verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, because of your union, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on, his beha- on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. On the negative side, I don't live this list. On the positive side, I am an ambassador of this message. I, I want to go and make disciples. The purpose is to bring more people into union with Christ. I get to bring more people into the beauty of reconciliation. What an honor. What a privilege to have the union with Christ be a reality that I can share with someone else. Truth gives rise to action. I must do this. I am an ambassador. Our call to discipleship is predicated upon our union with Christ. We make disciples out of, it flows forth from our union. Now, there's a temptation here to make Christianity a pyramid scheme with Jesus on the top and then he's got his disciples and they have disciples and they have more and you get more rich if you bring more people in, right? No. We are all a disciple of one. This is Paul's point earlier in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, what, am I of Cephas? Am I of Apollos? Am I of Paul? No, is there division in Christ? We, we are all disciples of Jesus. Your union is with him. You're not a follower of, of Driscoll or MacArthur or Swindoll. You're a follower of Christ. And there's, there's no division there. Now that doesn't mean we can't disagree, but we do it in a different way, or we should. Um, that's another sermon for another day. And I would love to soapbox, but there isn't one near. You are you, the, the discipleship is only through Christ. I, I don't make disciples to have carbon copies of me, the proliferation of self. Discipleship is not self-duplication. You make little Christs, not little Lukes. I don't, I, there's one of me and that's enough. Sometimes I think that's too much. We don't make disciples to, to fill the seats. We don't make disciples to change legislation. Right? That's not our call. We make disciples to bring people into a beautiful union with the Savior. The reason we do this, the purpose behind trying to grow children in the faith is to bring them into a union that saves them from their sin. That unites them to Christ and His righteousness and His suffering. That saves them from from them. I need saving for me. Our union with Christ is the prescription lens through which we rightly see the Great Commission. 
It is the why. It is the value. I'm not moving rubble from one side of the field to the other. There is great purpose. It is the only purpose. My call to make disciples has value. It has inherent value because I bring people into a greater union with Christ. Only out of my own, out of my union. Let me read it to you in the words of Sinclair Ferguson, who gave several great messages on union with Christ. It is only when this foundation of union with Christ is in place, dare we issue the imperatives of the gospel. Without this, the imperatives of the gospel will kill our people rather than save our people. But when this great foundation is laid, then all the imperatives of the gospel can pour down upon their heads and they will say, give us more that we may live in Christ to the fullest of his glory. That is beautiful. Out of your union, this isn't a task. I get to to joyously be a part of this. That's so exciting. I, I, am a, I get to make disciples to the glory of his name, to bring people into a union that is unlike anything else. It's not a relationship like something else is a relationship. We can't even describe it. Paul, half the time, makes up words because he's, I don't know. We, just have, to, we have new vocabulary. Because nothing else is good enough to describe this reality. You are united with him. And because I'm united, I need to go and make disciples. And it, it, I'm an ambassador of this message. All right, I've given a lot of the why. I'll close with what this looks like a little bit out of Ephesians chapter 4. This is, uh, pieces of this are on that orange slip you had earlier. Um, it gives a little bit more of the in and out. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. This, what does this look like? It looks like coming alongside someone and bringing them into maturity. There will always be someone who is earlier on the, the, the timeline of faith than you are. Find one. Find several, find some people and help them come into a greater realization of what their union means. And then find someone else who knows more than you and have them bring you along, right? It's the old adage, be one, make one. You are a disciple, you make a disciple. I, 
I, I need to be brought into maturity. And I need to bring others who are younger than me into maturity. In faith and unity so they can be in Christ. This is what this looks like. We're not blown about by the waves. We're mature in, in our faith and what we believe and why and what, what the reality of your union actually means. It's a beautiful thing. Finish with the words back in our text from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And because of him you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Our union has nothing to do with us. And it is our task as we are here to bring others into that union. Out of nothing that is our, that is deserved, that we have earned, and out of nothing they have deserved or earned, but purely out of the grace and mercy of God, that he, while we were in sin, died for us so that we could be united with him and saved from our own wickedness. It is our daily joy to be a part of the imperative of the gospel, to go and make disciples. And we wait for him to come back and we pray regularly. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And while we wait, we make disciples. Father, we thank you for a chance, as always, to open your word and to hear from you. May our union be deeper. May we understand more fully. May we become lesser and you become greater. And along the way, may we make disciples to the glory of your name. We love you, Lord. Thank you for saving us out of nothing we deserved. It's in your name we pray.